0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Con Karapaniotidis in conversation with Melissa Lukashenko, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Bogle <laughs> One Jingiwala, Janangalela, Bhutaram Banjalang Jagan. Aren't we all blessed to be here on this beautiful Banjalang country today with the sun shining and the surf in the background and uh, our very welcome guest, Con, whose surname I've been practicing for the last half hour? I found. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I am going to be fine and I'm, I'm, I'm about to attempt it. So. Everybody should be holding their breath. Michael Williams gave me some really bad information. He told me, "Don't pronounce the G," and so I spent about ten minutes trying to do You're it. Overthinking m- it now. I was oh, no, totally just overthinking go. it. I've been overthinking. Yeah. Con, go. and then I'd adopted a Greek accent and discovered that con karapanadiotidas. There
1: you go. You've done it. You've, done it. <laughs> very, very, very
0: you've nailed it. <laughs> is with us all the way from gloomy Melbourne <laughs> via Brisbane. Uh, welcome to Bundjalung Country, Con. It's great to have you here among friends.
1: Thank you so much. And I also want to pay my respects to the fact that we gather on First Nations land and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present and emerging leaders, and recognise that this land was never ceded.
0: Thank you, Con. <laughs> That's not the bit of paper I need. That's the one. So, Con, I saw you speak the other night in Brisbane at Brisbane Square Library to an audience almost as big as this one, which I think just goes to say something about the power of um, the message that you've been sending out there for so many years. But after 17 years of running the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne and putting your heart and passion into that work, for some reason you've gone sideways into books. So tell me what... ...pushed you or drew you sideways into the wonderful world of publishing? Uh,
1: someone offering me a book deal. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't intended, as I was speaking the other night, to ever write a book. And and I had my a wonderful publisher named Catherine from Collins ...come and say, I'd like you to, to tell your story. And I honestly did think she was taking the piss and that this wasn't serious. And it took him a few months to convince me to say yes. And in the end I decided to say yes because... I, I was having the second worst year of my life last year. I, my health um, was in crisis. I thought for a while there I might have a, a life-threatening illness. My long-term relationship was falling apart. My weight had ballooned out. I had a year that involved everything from trying to stop refugees from being deported to getting smuggled into Manus Island. And the last thing I actually wanted to do was write a book about hope and about compassion and about how not to despair and I realised because things were so dark and things were so awful in my life I needed to write this book more than ever first for me uh, and then for others that feel that despair to let us know that we are survivors and that our stories matter and that we can get through anything together.
0: So. In contrast to a lot of uh, aspiring writers yeah. who are the ones chasing publishers around, like waving hefty manuscripts and yeah. hoping that the publisher will trip over in their in their haste to get away from them, it actually happened the other way for you. You were approached.
1: Yeah, and it was and it was and then it was like, well, um, how do I write this book um, and do justice to people that would be kind enough to buy it and to Harper Collins that would be nice enough to publish it. And I actually held the advance and didn't spend it because I was convinced I was going to have to give it back. (laughs) So I just kept it there, just kept it waiting, waiting, waiting for them to go, what were we thinking? (laughs) Give us back our money. Um, And so when I wrote it, I was like, well, how do I write this and, and make it worth something? And so I thought the only way of doing this is by being more vulnerable in my life than I'd ever been before. And you can honestly pick up my book and it's all of me. I, I've left nothing out, and it was incredibly terrifying. Like I I wept most days while I was writing it, but it was incredible when you take a lifetime of your own trauma and shame and silence, and all the stuff that slowly suffocates you, and suddenly you just give it to everyone, and you go, here it is. It's not going to hold me anymore. It's not going to triumph over me anymore. And I did that because I wanted others to know that we don't have to suffer in silence, that our vulnerability is really powerful and our fragility is what makes us beautiful. And I've spent more than a quarter of a century working with people that are on our margins, broken. And when they suffer, our society locks them up and hides them away and shames them and labels them. Mm. And yet all of us are struggling right now. All of us have a struggle right now. But how many of us feel safe enough to share it and to say help, Mm. especially men? And that's a lot of why I wrote this book.
0: Yeah, it's um, some pretty profound stuff there. And I do want to get um, into the ideas that you write about in terms of shame a little bit later on. Mm. Because I think there's some very interesting parallels there between personal shame and national shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also am dying to ask you about being smuggled into Manus Island. Yeah. Because as we speak, is it is it Manus or Nauru where there's a man with a possible broken hip? I believe is uh, is. He's he's
1: he's one of dozens and dozens and dozens. Like yeah. we we had to rescue a couple of weeks ago with the help of Morris Blackburn a two-year-old little girl that was about to die there because they'd given the little girl expired medicine, which then led to her having to be rehydrated by being drilled into her chest. Jesus. And so you've got a man now with a broken hip where they're basically just giving him Panadol. Mm. So this is happening every day. This is our national shame. Mm. Yeah. This is our national shame.
0: Absolutely. And we'll talk. Yeah. We'll get into yeah. that further later yeah. and talk about what to do about it. Yeah. But before we do that, um, tell me about... Mount Beauty, growing up in Mount yeah. Beauty as a little Greek boy.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a little country town called Mount Beauty. Parents were tobacco farmers, beautiful little town surrounded by mountains next to Force Creek. Uh, but in a town of Smith and Jones, when you're a Yotis, you really… That's right, you, show me up. You, 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 you don't fit in and… You know, a lot of what I write about in my book is about the story of my parents, my grandparents and mine. And mine starts in this little town where my parents are working 17 hours a day doing the most backbreaking work to put food on the table for my sister and I. And I'm growing up being told that I'm a dirty little wog and that I should go back to where I came from and that I should just piss off. And so those experiences of trauma, of being othered, of knowing what it is like to not be seen as Australian, Mm. And knowing that your identity and your belonging is fragile, even though you were born here, um, both at the time broke me but made me the man that I am today. And all of my work is inspired by those sort of experiences.
0: Yeah, so the the little con who was told he didn't belong and he should go back home somewhere else yeah. is exactly the kind of messages that you well still yeah working like, how
1: many of us how many of us look around to others and go why can't I just be in the majority sometimes why can't I just fit in mm. I used to look at these hairless little Anglo boys named Jason and Brett and, <laughs> and and the girls liked them and they knew how to talk to girls and they just knew how to carry themselves and I had uh, like a Dennis Lily style mustache by 11 or 12 <laughs> uh, I mean, I have hair that even God hasn't seen, and <laughs> it is like, and so you know what it's like to feel fragile and awkward, and uh, and I'm still that awkward mm. eleven-year-old, twelve-year-old. I'm just better at hiding it now. Yeah.
0: Someone once said, "There's two types of people in the world: introverts and those that pretend." Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, I know what you. I know where you're coming from, brother. So. You were growing up in Mount Beauty yeah. in, in country Victoria and feeling very much out of place and being told, literally told, that you didn't belong. Yeah. And things were not great at home either, were they? No. There was a lot on the, your young shoulders at home.
1: Yeah. Uh, like on the one hand, my sister and I had the most profound um, unconditional love. How many of you have similar stories of, you know, I was the first to go to high school in my family. My parents had to leave school at nine and twelve. My dad was working the field at the age of five, my mum was telling me, the other week. Like, they didn't have a childhood. They just had trauma and poverty mm-hmm. and struggle. And only when I was writing this book was I actually grasping the fact that I was basically growing up in a traumatised home of traumatised parents, raising but what does that mean? Kids. I mean, trauma
0: yeah. is a word that we hear yeah. a lot and yeah. it's a word I use a yeah. lot as well. I've been writing about trauma in yeah. my last book as oh, well. But oh, yeah. what... I like to drill down. Yeah. Someone on okay. Facebook yesterday was talking about low socioeconomic families yeah. and I said, this is a lady at Maureen, I said, Sister, yeah. don't talk about low socioeconomic situations. Yeah. Talk about the poor. You know, yeah. what What can clarity of language do? So yeah. without uh, wanting... Sure. Look,
1: one of the, one of the s- saddest memories I have growing up is My father would work like like an animal. He'd come home, he'd he'd help cook dinner, he'd love his garden, but then he'd sit out on his veranda. He almost never came inside the family home. Mm. And he'd sit out there basically numbing himself. He was put onto Valium by some doctor who, instead of referring him to a counsellor, did what he does, what's happened to so many migrant parents, basically had him on tranquilizers. mm. And then my dad would numb himself with Valium and alcohol and would just be like an island out there. And you would go out there... And sit with him. And he felt so defeated. He felt like I why is your mum never happy? Why am I always, you know, disappointing you? And I was so angry. I was so angry. I'm like, why are the two of you always fighting? And they were both at each other all the time. And I was the one having to be the emotional arbiter, the one to stop each from walking out on the other, the one, you know, each seeing whose side was I gonna take this this night, this week. And then the other feeling let down. And I usually sided with my mum because I always thought, oh, my mum's the innocent one in all of this. And only when I got older and when I suddenly lost my father, I wasn't angry anymore. I was just filled with grief and regret and not realising that they both just did the best that they could. And the best of me, my values actually all comes from my mum and dad. Mm. And then there's a part of me that never got to be a kid and never got to mm. not have to be in control and responsible and and mature and grown up. And and I became an adult that didn't know intimacy and affection and asking for help and my needs because all I knew was I needed to never lose my shit and I needed to always be in control. I need to always be strong. I need to be... Um, looking out for my sister and trying to buffer her as much as I could for what was happening. And it was never abusive. I, just, I mean as in it was just a place of such profound unhappiness. Mm, mm. And it wasn't their fault. My parents, my dad was extraordinary. My mum is extraordinary. And I was talking to my mum about it. She was crying, reading it. And she's like, you do know we did the best we could. And I go, and she's like, it made me so sad, Con. to, to I didn't know you were this sad and that you were this unhappy. And it made me really sad. And my mum was crying and I went up to her and I hugged her and I said, it's okay, mum. I go, I love you. And I go, I know you and dad did the best that you could. And it's so hard as we get older how we look back at things, you know. Yeah, thank you. It's okay, it's okay. And it's good. I, 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 I'm really comfortable crying as a man. More, more men need to cry and more so men okay. need to show. Um, it's all, all of us that feel like this. And it is personal. I mean, everything in this book is personal. Everything we do is personal. Mm. And that's how we should live with openness.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. So in your book you talk about the role as a, um, as a teenager, particularly in a young adult, that books played in, in your life and yeah. books becoming a beacon of hope for you.
1: Yeah, I, I came, books have been really precious to me and I came across a book of sermons. I'm not a, a religious person but I came across this book of sermons by Martin Luther King called Strength to Love mm. and he was this man who died for a dream of a an equal society for all and mm. who said it's okay to lead with passion and purpose and, and not conform and suddenly… I found someone that spoke to my experience, mm-hmm. and I was drawn to reading all about the civil rights movement and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X, mm-hmm. and suddenly going, "Oh, there's a story that I can identify with of being the other, mm-hmm. and of not being defeated by it." Being and the outsider and being the outsider at the same time. Yeah, and yeah. it inspired me yeah. when I was eighteen to yeah. pick a to pick a different path. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I think um, Dr. King must have inspired so many people that he never never had. Dreamed of of touching all around the globe.
1: I got to meet his son a couple Did of I? months ago. And oh, I was how like, was that? It was incredible. And I just went up to him and just said, "I need you to understand what what your father and your mother, Coretta, who's an incredible woman as well, yeah. uh, what the what they mean to me." Yeah, it was really special.
0: Yeah. And so, as a, a raw, young, unformed eighteen-year-old, yeah. you threw yourself into some of the trickiest parts of Australian society in a, in a yeah. kind of blind attempt to heal yourself, I can only imagine Yeah,
1: yeah, I think a lot of people go into the caring profession because they're trying to find a way to kind of care for themselves and so on the one hand I had all this love of my parents but racism growing up in a country town and then bullied all the way through high school when we moved to Melbourne when I was 12 and so by the time I got to 18 I was at a crossroads, one of many in my life, which was... Um, like so many young people, and how many of you have felt this way? I felt worthless, I felt unlovable, I, I wanted to vanish off this earth and I didn't think I could ever be loved. I actually was convinced that I would never, ever be in a relationship. I would never have intimacy in my life. And at 18 I'm like, I, I no one's ever going to love me but I've got love I, I need to give and I want to give and if I give it to others... Maybe that's my way of having love in my own life. And so mm. at 18 I embarked on a 10-year journey of basically just going out there and volunteering everywhere in every community that I identified with.
0: Very brave. Did it feel scary at the time?
1: At, at the first time it did. The first time was a homeless men's shelter where men in their 40s, 50s, 60s were there um, with me. The men we walked by, you know, like I saw – I was at a cafe this morning and this, this man who was quite unwell – and, I was, and he was like dropping food in a cafe and just wandering aimlessly around. And I was listening to the cafe person. And they were like, you are not welcomed here, were her words. So I went up and I just gave him five bucks, which is the least I could do. But it, it reminded me of the men I've seen all through my life. You are not welcomed here. Mm. And here were these men um, who had lost everything. But so many of us are so close to losing. it: lose a relationship, lose a job, your mental health, your health goes. And these men embraced me, took me to their bosom like I was a long-lost son. Mm. And from that experience, I then went out and did crisis telephone counselling to three, four in the morning with people calling me, wanting to take their own lives. I'm thinking, how the hell are they calling a stranger? I got to run support groups for male survivors of child abuse. I used to do outreach work supporting people that were sex working, worked with terminally ill kids at the children's hospital. And in all of these communities, I found community and I found resilience and I found beauty mm. all these people that apparently so many of these people that we told are the worthless the burden the problem the threat mm. all I found was humanity mm. and these incredible people that were surviving and they were just like me and you with very similar origin stories but something had fallen apart And society had forgotten about them.
0: Mm. It reminds me so much, Con, of the work I do with Aboriginal and other women leaving prison and coming out to, you know, lives of great poverty and great difficulty. And yet the the joy and the humour that is you know that found in being with those women a lot of the time and with their families it's just uh, it can be really hard and heart-wrenching and difficult and then some days it's just so joyous and so fulfilling and and I feel like I've been given a gift to work with the people in the margins like you say. But it
1: is a gift and I've had the honour to be on a board of an Indigenous children's organisation for the last six years and Every time I go up to the Northern Territory, mm-hmm. the compassion and kindness and generosity of elders, mm-hmm. of of the elder women, yeah. and the compassion I have towards refugees. Because mm-hmm. they sit and they say to me, Oh, so displaced from your displaced from their country, mm-hmm. demonized, vilified, victimized, and blamed for their misery, mm-hmm. and they survive and they rise. Mm-hmm. And they're like, That sounds familiar. That's our story. Yeah. And it's yeah, those common threads, yeah, are
0: Absolutely, so precious, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, and our law, Aboriginal law, has has rules about uh, caring for the stranger in the same way that, or a similar way that um, some Islamic societies, I believe, do. Whether that's for twenty four hours or at different periods in people's lives, yeah. um, our law is not ever about a simple shunning of the stranger, it's its all about inclusion and and that's that's the message I hear whenever I talk to my elders and mostly what I hear in the Aboriginal community is, yeah, we, we know what these people are facing because the same people that hate them are the same people that hate us.
1: But no one's listening, are they? Like, no one's actually listening, this is the problem. Our poli- our government's not listening, our politicians aren't listening. The
0: government is on uh, they have broken ears. Yeah. But, uh, we, we have to make them listen and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's about emotional education as, as well as all the other kinds of education, I think, isn't it? To and be able th- to see, yeah. you know, not the asylum seeker but the human being. But it's interesting
1: also, like, if you think about the, the parallel and look at the Uluru Statement and seeing this incredible document all about values and hope and possibility and future mm, yeah, and yet it falls on deaf ears.
0: Yeah. It's That's okay. We've been here a long time. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> Uh, You said the other night in Brisbane, um, Con, that people talked to you about the difficulty of the work and the potential for despair. But um, in the book you write about one of your darker moments and a particular taxi ride. Can you tell us about that?
1: So it was about midnight and I was spilling out from a, a weekly Wednesday night legal service as a lawyer with my sister who's been volunteering since day one and she's incredible, Nola, And it was about a 15 hour day. And I'm used to despair, but I was just, it was a particularly hard night just having to tell uh, all these families that they'd come to the end of the journey and that they were going to have to go home. And you've got people that are already broken by so much. You know, I talk about how they've missed first birthdays, first baby steps, first anniversaries, they've missed home. And there you are, tearing apart the last thing for them. And I was walking out going, why do I bother? This is just, this government is just beating us. They're breaking up people. They're beating us. I held down a cab and I get into a cab. And the cab driver turns to me and goes, you remember me? And I'm like, yes, I do. And he's like, when I came here, I had nothing. And you and your friend came and brought a truckload of furniture to our family's home and furnished it. We were sleeping on the floor. And then you fought for our family and we are now refugees and safe here because of you and when we get to the end of the ride I go to pay him he's like no no this is the least I can please do for you let me do this for you and I don't know what the odds of that were in that (laughs) moment but God knows I needed that (laughs) Um, and it was a really important reminder and I talk a lot about this in the book about the importance of being idealistic and the importance of never giving up Um, and every time people tell us it's naive and and I keep saying, my naivety and my ide- my idealism and my bleeding heart doesn't separate families, send refugees to die on offshore prison camps, mm-hmm. you know, or turn our back on on basic decency, humanity. It actually builds, mm-hmm. and it actually nurtures. And imagine if we weren't there. Imagine if none of us cared, and none of us tried, and none of us fought for anything. Mm-hmm. The state of the world. Mm-hmm.
0: And in a way, the, the asylum seeker resource centre con it came out of a a moment or a, a week of naivety and uh, and bleeding heart values, didn't it? It just it it was a decision, almost just, a snap decision that you made, yeah.
1: Yeah, just by chance, I'd, I'd happened to be working with people seeking asylum on the side. I was teaching at a university at the time, and a nun, Sister Bernadette, had asked me to see a couple of young men who were my age who had been tortured in their countries. And I found out there was nowhere for people to get food in Melbourne of all places. This is
0: 2001 or This is 2001
1: year? and I'm teaching at a university and my students have to do a, a practical class project and no one will take them on a day a week for eight weeks. And I say to them, how about we then start our own charity as our TAFE project? I've got a mate named Pablo who's got a little shop, smaller than this stage, that we can have for free. I, I nick some furniture from my mum's had a few hundred dollars in the pocket, and in eight weeks from that day, the ASRC was born. Uh, 17 years later, it is now the largest refugee organisation in the country. And when I started it, people like, you cannot run an organisation that takes no money from the federal government, that is outspoken, that relies on volunteers and the goodwill of the Australian public. And I was used to people telling me that I was going to fail. My relatives told me I'd end up in prison when I was five. My... My math teacher told me to drop out of high school because I would never amount to anything. So many of us have been told what we cannot be and what we will not be and and who we can be. Mm. And so the more people told me what was not possible, the more determined I was to prove them wrong. And from that little shop front providing food, a few months later the tamper happens. We will decide who comes to this country in the manner in which they come. Now our country never recovered from that, Mm. but it also started a a quiet revolution of people going, not in my name. And that's how the centre went from that little shop front to the size of this festival, physically the building we're in now, Mm. to 1,300 people who volunteered, to hundreds of thousands of people who have helped over the years. And I share a lot of stories in those darkness about the way in which the darker it gets, the more people I see loving, fighting, caring, donating, advocating and protesting. Mm. And that's the story we don't hear enough of. And we keep being told, oh, you're the bleeding heart or you're the social justice warrior. And it's like... And I've been saying this everywhere I've been talking about. We're feeling exhausted, not because we our hearts are full of love and compassion. We're exhausted in being told that we're the problem. Mm. We are, and all I always keep saying to people: is stop justifying your compassion and start getting people to justify their apathy mm. and their indifference mm. and their selfishness and their cruelty. Put them under the spotlight, not yourself anymore. Mm. We're done doing that, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you.
0: it puts a lie to the, in an, many ways to the idea that um, refugee policy is about complexity, doesn't it, Con? Thank you.
1: We're always told it's, it's too complex, Con. Mm. It's too difficult. You're just naive. The reality is we have in Peter Dutton, in Tony Abbott, in Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, the British immigrant, um, all of them immigrants, we have people that are trying to dumb us down who have no vision for this country, and all they have is fear. Mm. And in in 60 seconds, if we were serious about helping refugees, we would close those offshore prisons, take refugees from Indonesia, have safe passage, increase, not cut our refugee intake, increase, not freeze foreign aid, enable family reunion, increase our refugee intake. We've just cut immigration by 30,000. That, in fact, is costing our economy half a billion dollars. And we shouldn't take refugees for economic reasons, but what I'm trying to get across is that we actually are impoverished the more we push back and isolate ourselves. Now, a dear old friend of mine was the late uh, Mr. Fraser. And when I asked him, and and Tammy's one of our patrons now continuing to hold the torch, and I asked him at the time, I go, Mr. Fraser, when you were prime minister, was it like this? And he goes, yes. Yes. But it was more complex. We didn't have the architecture, the infrastructure, the technology. And they wanted me to to tow the bows back. They wanted me to push them back. They wanted me to lock the refugees up. And I led. And I refused to. Mm. And I processed people. A quarter of a million people while he was Prime Minister. Mm. There is another way. Post-World War II, you had the greatest movement of people until now. And it was a universal story of pride, the way in which we welcomed immigrants and refugees. We used to be proud of this. And instead now it's become the national stain, what we do to refugees. Mm. And we need to, every time they keep pushing back and saying it's complex, going, what part's complex? It's not complex to build these... Re- I've been, as I said to Manus Island, the most remote place. It took me nine hours to get there. And then having to get on a little leaky boat, getting smuggling to get there, literally.
0: Yeah, tell and, us this, that story.
1: Oh, well, a classic story of where I went at the time where they had cut off water, electricity, medicine and food. And we needed to go in and see what was happening. Uh, we found a fixer who assured me that there would be this nice big boat uh, <laughs> that would be with a family on it that would draw no attention because to go by land required getting past, you know, the, the Navy, 500 metres of land, impossible.
0: Where did you leave from? Did you leave from Darwin? Or so,
1: no, so, well, f- very quickly we got... We quickly, got. quickly, we've got all the time okay. in the world. So we got to, we got to Port Moresby And then the next morning, we tried to fly fly to Manus Island, um, which again is a a couple of hour flight on top of getting to Port Moresby. And on that day, that was one of the biggest days they were trashing the detention centre. So it was us and SBS. And they had disabled the brand new boarding gates and got us to write our names down on a piece of paper Ten minutes later, the flight is cancelled. Hmm. And when we ask, is it due to technical issues? They're like, oh, no, just a management decision. And what we discover is the Australian government determines when planes fly and don't fly there. Next day we get there and we pay a fixer to get us there. We get to a little dock. It's pitch black and the boat is no big boat. It's this tiny, like, canoe where I'm scared, <laughs> myself and Tash and Jana, who are with me, that it's going to tip over if I go too much to the right or left. And it's 45 minutes in pitch dark, with just the barramundi, the bluest of skies. And the risk was that the PNG Navy would arrest us and deport us. And our biggest fear was letting the men down and not getting there. And when we finally arrived there, the men have got flashing torches through their phones to let us know it's safe to land. And I'll never forget the night I spent in there of watching men having to dig out of the ground to get water. The men covered in rashes and infections because they were washing out of rubbish bins. I'll never forget meeting Sunil, who had chronic epilepsy and should have been in an intensive care unit, the same man who took his life this year. And when we rang his wife to comfort her, we found out we were the ones breaking the news to her because the government didn't think it was their responsibility to let a mother of three know that her husband had died. I'll never forget what I saw in there, but that's not complex. To spend $2.5 million per man to kill 12 human beings on Nauru and Manus, to spend two times the UNHCR's global budget that helps 60 million people to lock up a couple of thousand people, which is what we've done over 10 years, that's not complex. But to give people safe passage, let them settle, allow them to work and contribute, and to take more refugees, oh, that's beyond us. That's beyond me and you, our great nation, our great indigenous multicultural nation, that's beyond us. And that's why it incenses me. And so every time you hear that, push back Mm. and talk about values because they've tricked us into using this toxic language. Talk about values. Is it our values to lock up people indefinitely? Is it our values to, to lock up 122 children behind cage fences and separate families? Is it our values to do what they're doing now, which is strip families, pregnant women of all income so they starve? Is that our values? Mm. It's the weaponizing of fear, isn't it? Well, it is. And it's a weaponizing of people. It is a weaponizing of going, these people are a danger. In fact, our borders are safe. And these refugees are not a threat. It's our humanity that is in danger right now. Mm. And it's the conscience of this nation that is in danger right now. And unless we fight for and protect it, all of us, what we stand for and embody is in danger right now. That's what's at risk. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: I can hear the passion I'm sure we can all hear the passion in your voice and the the drive that's that's led you to help seventeen seventeen thousand people over the past seventeen thousand years Con and I thank you for that and i I just want to honor that I want to honor that spirit in you thank the you. courage to do that thank you. you talk a lot in the book. ...about values and you talk about shame. You also talk about forgiveness and the need to forgive ourselves. Can you say something about h- how you learned that forgiveness... Yeah. And, ...and what made that necessary for yeah. you? Yeah.
1: I, 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 one of the hardest things I think we struggle with... ...is actually how do we forgive ourselves. So in the book I talk about reaching the age of 32 and recognising that I was a coward, that I had set up this organisation. I'd spent almost 15 years telling people to be brave and courageous Um, and I was a coward. I had no personal life. I was so terrified of intimacy and of touch. I was, I'll share it, I was 32 when I had my first relationship. I was 32 when I lost my virginity. And my publisher was like, take that out, that's too embarrassing. And I'm like, no, no. No, 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 it's okay. I'm done with real men. I spent 20 years unlearning how to be a real man. And real men are killing themselves and killing women at record numbers in this country. We don't need any more real men. We need decent men, we need kind men, we need good men. Uh, But what is really hard at that point when you kind of think you're unlovable and you can't bear yourself from your physical self to your emotional self What's hard is sometimes we double down on our grief and we go, well, I've waited this long, it's too late. It's too late to find friendships. I've I've got dozens of beautiful friends. I've had lots of lovely partners since and it's so hard to sometimes forgive yourself and go, it's okay, I was ready when I was ready. I wish I could have started that part of myself. Like I look back in my 20s and go, I grieve it. I go, I had no, there was no me in all of that. But that's okay because I was doing the best that I could. And I talk a lot about the importance of us having expectations of ourselves. And we're all our harshest critics, yeah? Like we can, we'll tear ourselves down more than anyone else could ever. We'll reject ourselves before anyone else gets a chance to reject us. Like how many of you spend so much energy just appearing normal and happy? <laughs> you know, I was I was, you know, I was on Twitter last night going, oh God, I've turned up at the Byron Bay Writers Festival opening night I've, and I brought a book as my safety blanket because I'm like, I'm not going to go and talk to anyone here. and I'm going to be really scared. I'm here talking to hundreds of you, and this is this is this part is my public part. My private part was sitting there with a book, going, "Okay, found a nook. I've got my book. I'm going to take it. I'm going to have a dirty cigarette." And then other, <laughs> then other, then other people, the other ethnic's found me, and they all just came towards me and go, "You can't hide. Come out." <clears throat> and we need to forgive ourselves, and by that I mean we're all doing the best that we can, and. We always carry so much grief, you know, the relationship's not mended, the words never spoken, the forgiveness never given, the love never experienced, the words you never told. The... We all have these moments and we carry them like an armor and like a shame. We don't need to do that. It's okay. It's okay that we all mess up and it's okay that we all have regrets. It's about what do we do now? and let others decide whether they'll accept us or not. In fact, whether you accept me or not is irrelevant. It's that work we need to do on ourselves about, are we enough for ourselves? Mm. And being able to work, I work every day at trying to love myself. Mm. Every day I have to work on that. Mm. And I think the more we talk openly about that, the more safe spaces we have to feel that we can do that together, Mm. yeah?
0: I think one of the most beautiful things that I've I've learnt from elders and other Aboriginal people over the years is the is the cultural trope we have of not rushing to judgment. You know, we're as inclined to outrage and anger and cynicism as a lot of people, but when you uh, when you come across those special elders, there's a such an absence of judgment. It's and it's a beautiful thing, and it's an instructive thing and i really wish that it's all healing, Australians is it? it's, it's absolutely healing. and it and, and it, yes. if it was embedded in australian culture in the way that fear is inculcated in australian culture what a different place we'd be imagine. talking about imagine yeah. and i think it can happen i think it can happen and on that note thank you con do we thank this incredible woman come on Thank you. you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers' Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.